0: Hey everyone, Mesh here from Talk Money. I want to share one of my all-time favorite episodes with you before we end the year. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We're excited to bring you Season 3 on January 13th. We've all seen the hardships the restaurant industry is enduring this year. Today, we're sharing A Table for Two from Season 1. Running a restaurant is hard under normal circumstances, and in this episode, we discover all the intricacies that go into starting and running a successful restaurant. I hope you enjoy.
1: People like to jump to conclusions and analyses on simply the markup of a dish without taking into account
0: all of the other factors. I'm Mesh Lakani. this is Talk Money, and that's Gabriel Stallman, a restaurateur with several successful New York restaurants to his name. I've been asking him how he prices his menus, and I seem to have hit a nerve. You know,
1: somebody says there, oh, he's selling this bottle of wine for $50? I can get that online for $10. What's your point? That I'm charging a $40 margin? Okay, let's think about a few other things. When you buy that bottle of wine for $10, where are you drinking it? At home. Where are you drinking this? Did you have to do the dishes? Did you have to open it up? Do I have nicer wine glasses than you? Am I playing a stereo? Like, you're not paying for the wine. And that, like, you're not paying for the steak. That is part of what you're paying for. But the thing is, is, I don't have a line on the bill that says rent. I don't have a line on the bill that says labor. I don't have a line on the bill that says utilities. I have a line on the bill that says steak. The steak covers My insurance, my rent, my silverware, the fact that we broke three glasses today and we're going to break three more tomorrow, it covers the handyman. It covers the toilet paper. It covers the candles. We're charging you because you came to dinner here. And we've been working all day. Literally, it took two shifts of people to make your muscles. Somebody received it this morning. It's 9 p.m. That person came to work at 7 a.m. Like... That person came in, received it off a truck, washed it and scrubbed it. They left at four. Somebody else is cooking it. I've already got 10 hours of labor into you getting muscles. And by the way, let's not talk about the maitre d' that greeted you, right this way, the waiter that served Tonight your food, we have a special on Dover salt. The bartender that made your cocktail, the busboy that cleared, the dishwasher that did the dishes, The manager who oversaw the schedule in the dining room. Can you cover Tommy's shift? And the chef who oversaw the schedule in the kitchen. I need you to work a double. Then we've got the director of finance who makes sure that payroll gets done. Like, that's what the $40 are for. It's not just for the wine. I'm not just marking you up for the wine. Because no restaurant you go to is charging you just for what you're eating. They're burying within the cost of what you're eating all of their expenses. And that goes for carry out food
0: too. In today's episode, we're learning about restaurants. Now I've been an investor for the last 10 years. One of the things I've always heard is never invest in a restaurant or bar. You lose your money, they say. It's high risk and the reward is not high enough. And yet, restaurants remain wildly popular and prevalent forms of business. They employ millions of people in the US. We frequent these places, choosing to dine out on a weekly, sometimes even daily basis. But how many of us really know about the hard work and sweat that goes into them? There's a lot to take for granted. And that's sort of the point. But maybe you've wondered why your favorite popular cafe went out of business or why the restaurant down the street doesn't take reservations, and just how can they justify marking up that $10 bottle of wine? Well, here on Talk Money, it's my job to make things more transparent. Let's understand why things cost what they cost, what goes into opening, owning, and running a restaurant, and all the ways things
2: can go awry. To help me, I'm leading on this gentleman. So my name's Eli Chait. I grew up in Los Angeles in a restaurant family. Restaurant family doesn't even cover it. Eli's dad, Bill Chait, is a famous restaurateur,
0: having opened nearly 50 restaurants in the Los Angeles area. So Eli's got a ton of experience working in the industry, but Eli's a pro in his own right too. He started Copilot, an analytics product that helps restaurants understand how to improve and monitor their performance. When OpenTable bought Copilot, Eli became their director of product.
2: When we started Copilot, it was, the height of daily deal mania. There was Groupon, there was hundreds of other companies doing daily deals, and restaurants were really struggling. You know, it was the end of the Great Recession, and people were throwing a lot of things against the wall and not really understanding what was working. So I I had a number of conversations with general managers at different restaurants. One of them ran a Blackboard Eats campaign, which at the time was kind of like a higher end Groupon. And when I asked him, how did it perform? How did it do? He said, oh, it was terrible. The guests were terrible. People didn't spend any money, Um, you know, tips were poor. And then when I actually looked at the results, it was the opposite of that people were spending just above the average spend in the restaurant they were tipping on the pre-discount totals actually great for servers um and so it really was i didn't have a good idea of what actually happened and just was making the wrong decisions based on that um and then when we w- went to actually plan new promotions they had a lot of issues understanding when they really needed traffic. And restaurants are peak-oriented businesses. And so if you don't know exactly when your peaks are, it could be very difficult to figure out where you need incremental traffic. You know, the fact that I got that wrong, you know, they were wrong what time they started getting busy, it meant that, again, they were making the wrong decisions about marketing. So we realized, okay, we could fill that gap. Uh, and so the product we built that ultimately got a lot of traction was a smart daily sales report So we would show how busy were you, how many seats were filled, how quickly we were able to turn tables over, how much were people spending. So we were showing these metrics benchmarked against other restaurants, which would help you understand, are you doing well? Are you doing poorly? Where do you need to focus? It made the data more actionable.
0: One of the factors that those restaurants got wrong, what their peak hours are, is critical. Restaurants make the majority of their money in the peak hours, typically evenings and weekends. The off-peak hours? Well, that's why you see certain promotions, like lunch specials. These help drive enough business to break even during those hours, or at least
2: minimize their losses. I mean, if a restaurant opens at 5pm, by the time they open up, they've already had people working in the restaurant for hours. They've already dug a hole that's at least a few hundred dollars deep, probably a couple thousand dollars deep, where they've incurred costs just to get open, just open the doors. And so, to be able to make money, they have to do enough revenue to generate enough contribution margin to actually pay off all those costs. And so, Typically, you know, for restaurants, a quarter full, you have a bare minimum set of people in the kitchen that are required to make that food. You know, you have someone at the salad station, you have someone at the line, and you can't just have one person working both those positions. And so what that means is that during off-peak periods, the restaurant's typically losing money, not only are you not generating income, you're you're furthering your loss. So you need your peak period to be long enough and to be big enough to pay for all the periods that that weren't generating enough revenue to pay the costs. And so that's that's probably the most difficult part about the restaurant business is there are very few restaurants that could operate just on Friday and Saturday night. And that that's often the only nights you make money. I think the restaurants that are really successful, they're typically able to do two to three turns on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. If you're able to do that, that's usually a sign that you've got something that that's going to be very profitable. Each time you see a group of diners at a table, that's a turn. So 3 turns means that the same table
0: gets 3 sets of diners that night. You know, one group comes in for early evening, another at prime time, and a third for a late evening meal.
2: It's it's rare. Most restaurants, I would say, are, you know, what I would call one turn wonder. You know, they have one turn and they maybe have a couple tables that have two turns. And you can imagine if you're trying to do three, the challenge with that is how many hours do you need to operate such that for the majority of tables, you could actually have three parties sit down on the same table, you know, three different times over the course of the night. It's, it's hard. You have to be open a lot of hours. You have to be able to make service relatively quick. Um, so it's definitely a challenge. Like on a super busy night,
0: like this is really more for people that attend restaurants. Like You're hanging out in your seat. Um, Like, I just spent all this money on this dinner. But the restaurant knows that they need to turn that table and give it to the next person in order for them to hit their target for the evening. Is there a balance there between... Um, quality of service, but also like you know, we're trying to make money here. You know, how how best do you handle those situations? Because I think a lot of times patrons just walk in and we just expect service. We don't really think about the business or what you all have to make to pay the bills.
2: You know, ultimately, it's you're in the hospitality business. You know, your job is to make people feel welcome and, and to accommodate them and. If you're really busy and you're overbooked and you really need that table and there's nothing you could do, um, you know, typically the right first thing to do is to to get a round of champagne for the party that's waiting for the table. Um, so I think, I think from a restaurant perspective, you know, even if you've created a situation where you need to get that table up, it's, it's usually not the right move to like be a jerk to them. There's certain things a restaurant could do that control the pace of the dining experience. Um, Hillstone Group is famous for having managers take a stopwatch out and time every part of the guest experience. How quickly does it take for a server to touch the table the first time? How quickly does it take to get a drink order out and and hit the table? How quickly is the food order put in? They time all of those things because those are the parts of the dining experience where they could control them. And, um, you know, most restaurants in 2019, it surprises me, the servers, when they come out and ask you if you want dessert, and you say no, they don't have the check with them. They they aren't what's called check ready. Being check ready could shave ten minutes off the dining experience without really making people feel rushed. Now, I think if you're a restaurant that isn't going to take a lot of reservations and it's going to be primarily walk in, there's a lot of benefits for that. It's a lot easier to get three or four turns in an evening if you're walk-in only, because you don't have to leave a table vacant waiting for a reservation party to show up. If you're really busy and if you have unlimited demand, a walk-in only style of service allows you to seat a lot more guests. If you think about a reservation taking restaurant, if you're trying to seat one table three times, you need to make some assumption about how long each diner is gonna stay there. So if it's a party of two and you assume each party takes two hours, you're gonna seat a party at five, a party at seven or a party at nine. But no one eats exactly the amount of time you've allotted. And so you either have to, you know, assume they're going to stay two hours and set the turn time to an hour and a half. So you're leaving everybody waiting or you do the opposite. You you provide more time than they're going to actually need so you don't. You don't force people to leave, but that means the table sits empty and is vacant for periods of time. And so um, if you're walking only, you could keep tables vacant for 15 seconds. If you accept reservations, tables are going to be vacant for, you know, 10, 20, 30, 45 minutes easily. Uh, so it's, it's much more efficient to be walking only. Um, I think the other benefit of it, it's just much easier to be attractive for for neighborhood people, for walk-ins and reservations, no show reservations cancel late. If you're only 50% reservation taking, you know, you're able to more easily move around what tables the reservations are going to be on and, and, and limit the number of empty periods with tables vacant. And then I think also it's, you know, there is a set of diners that just don't reserve, they don't only walk in. To be honest, I'm, I'm one of those. If a restaurant can't accommodate walk-ins, you know, there's a high chance I'm not going to go there unless it's on my list and I really plan in advance. You know, there are a lot of diners like that, I'm the same way. I'm a walk-in
0: person. Uh, I just like the experience of it. I like to get to know the maitre d' um, and sit at the bar. Uh, I rarely make reservations. Um, family's been investing in restaurants. You're personally investing in restaurants. Um, an investment in a restaurant, You know, what do you look for when investing in a new restaurant? The
2: main thing I focus on is You know, is this group capable of, you know, creating a great restaurant? Do they understand what all the elements are of a great dining experience? Are they capable of executing service? Are they capable of building teams? You know, building teams is really important.
0: Building an amazing team is essential to the success of any business, whether it be a tech company or a restaurant. So let's back up for a moment. I do want to talk about investing in restaurants, but I think it's important to hear a bit more about what goes into even starting one. There's location, concept, build-out, hiring, and finding the right talent. And that brings us back to Gabriel Stallman, who you heard at the beginning of the episode. His experience can give you some idea of the minutia involved. When he arrived in New York City in 2003, he was a nobody. And so it took me a while to get a job. I hustled my way in.
1: I schmoozed. So at one point, I I had three jobs. I was bartending three nights a week at Hearth Restaurant. I was bartending three nights a week at a restaurant in Tribeca called Pache. And then I had a five-day-a-week morning internship at Food & Wine Magazine. All of them were strategic. I was like, I need to network. I need to know the restaurant people in the industry. I need to meet media contacts. Like, I was studying the people that had done it before me. And they all had friends in media. So, you know, I was like, great, let me build that up.
0: And then... How did it come to the point of starting your first restaurant, meeting your partner? So at that restaurant, Pache, I was
1: the head bartender and the executive chef was a guy named Joey. And uh, that restaurant went out of business. And when that restaurant went out of business, uh, the chef was out of a job. I was out of a job. And we were looking at each other and it was, all right, well, fuck it. Let's do our own thing. So I started riding around the city looking for places for rent.
0: What did you know about, at this point, about starting a restaurant? Jack shit. You didn't know how much money you needed. You were just looking for a space.
1: Looking for a space. Got it. Had no idea. I'd never even managed anyone or anything. (laughs) I had never hired anybody. i had never interviewed anybody. Never written an employee handbook. Never used accounting software like QuickBooks. I had never managed a checkbook never started payroll. I'd never processed payroll. I had never formed an LLC, corporate taxes. I had never even looked at an operating agreement in my life. I had no clue.
0: All you knew is that you guys needed to find a space. All I knew is I'll figure it out. It's said that nine out of 10 restaurants fail. The very restaurant that Gabe and his new partner had worked at just failed. But with any great entrepreneur, there needs to be a willingness to take risks. Learn as you go, adapt, and yes, bridge the paradoxical gap between the experience you have and the experience you need. My attitude was like, I'm just do this restaurant. What's the worst that happens?
1: I fail. I was 25. Knowing how to save on startup costs also helps. So, you know, I found a space. I was intentionally looking for places that that were restaurants, so that they had infrastructure, so that they had a kitchen, so that they had a hood, so that they had a bathroom, so that they had a walk-in refrigerator, you know, things that would save me a bunch of money. We decided to raise $250,000 by selling 10 units of
0: 25 grand. The earliest money you are ever going to raise probably comes from friends and family, and that's what Gabriel and his partner did. But that only went so far. Each family could only cover one unit. The rest of those units, they had to get a bit more creative. Gabe and his partner looked to people they met, regular patrons of their prior jobs who liked their service and believed in their potential. We had a list of about 10 names that fit that
1: triangulation. (laughs) And a couple of them were super excited. So we had our 250.
0: And where does that $250,000 go? Well, that's why Gabe created a proforma. A proforma is a model that breaks down your projected revenue and expenses in multiple scenarios. It's an educated guess on how your business will operate within industry standards.
1: To create a pro forma, you know, we looked at business plans of our past bosses and we got an Excel spreadsheet and we made projections. And a lot of that has become much more of a scientific method that I use now. But then a lot of it was shooting from the hip. It was, okay, this is how much we're going to sell the appetizers and the entrees for. All right, we're going to have this many seats. I think everybody's going to order one app and one entree. And I think I'm going to turn the tables twice on Friday and once on Monday. Now I have an idea of how many seats I have. And what the average spend per person will be. This gives me a sense of revenue. We know what he's capable of with food cost because he was a chef. We had ideas of what businesses thought were successful beverage costs. We knew what a target labor cost should be. And we just kind of filled in the rest based on knowledge of industry. And we were able to build out a pro forma. And and with that pro forma, you know, you got your top line revenue, you got your expenses, and then you have your net. And we sat there and we said, all right, if we achieve this net, what percentage of the net do we need to offer our investors for their
0: $25,000? Remember, the people who invested that $250,000 actually need to make some money back. And to get them to put their money in in the first place, they need some expectation of what sort of income it'll generate. Now, I'm simplifying a bit, but what you need to know is that they look at an IRR, or internal rate of return. An IRR is what's used to measure how an investment performs over a defined period of time and is represented as a percentage. We had conversations with a few finance people we knew, and I think what came back was, if you can hit 20% or better, that will be very attractive to people. When Gabe says 20%, he means getting his investors a 20% return on their investment on an annual basis. But why 20%? Well, typically, we compare investments to the stock market. The stock market on a 10-year average should return 7 to 8% on your money every year. But the stock market is also highly liquid, diversified, and tax efficient. For you to put a portion of your money in a super risky restaurant investment, as opposed to the markets, or even New York City real estate, you need to be paid for that extra risk. In this case, a 20% annual return tips the scale enough to make the risk worthwhile. So a 20% return on one $25,000 share would mean? Yeah, I mean, it means five years to make your money back. So we worked backwards to achieve that.
1: You know, what percentage of this net income do I need to give you that will be a 20% return that will get you five grand?
0: A year. I need you to make five grand a year off of this. And once their money's paid back after five years, and then is it just an ongoing? Perpetuity, no dilution. That was the
1: program. Now, there was no preferred return either. We all
0: eat or don't eat yep. together. So Gabe sold 40% of his company to investors in order to raise that $250,000 investment that he needed. The investors therefore will get 40% of the net profit. The rest of the net profit, the 60%, goes to Gabe and his partner. It's their sweat equity. The idea is that they have a right to these profits by virtue of the work or sweat they put into the business. Which was then divided 50-50. 30% for him, 30% for
1: me, 40% to the investors. How does that whole process go? Like, is it a lot of learning curves? A lot of learning curves. And also, look, I don't want to trivialize what I do. But I also want to be clear. It's not rocket science. Once you get a sense of what you're bringing in, spend less than that. You got a few levers that you control. I control what I buy, ingredients. I control who I schedule to work. It's that simple. Learning curves were interesting with the first restaurant, which is uh, we didn't realize until after we'd signed the lease that we will never have full liquor there. It's across the street from school. Oh, my God. And the way that the laws are written in New York is that if you are within 500 feet of a school, you can only serve beer and wine. So uh, we didn't realize that until after we had signed the lease and applied for our license. And a liquor
0: attorney said, just so you know, you won't get hard liquor here. You'll only get beer and wine. And we were like, oh. This is a huge blow. I mean, liquor is a big ticket item. It's low cost, high profit, easy storage. Still, Gabe and his partner already signed the lease. Things were moving forward. They just had to make the best of the situation. But we built
1: a very small restaurant, so I needed less of everything. I needed a smaller staff,
0: had 30 seats. I was going to be the manager seven nights a week. And each night, Gabe would need two waiters and a busboy. That means he'd need enough people to cover three shifts seven days a week. But unlike Gabe, they may not all work seven days a week. Some of them might only work four days. So he settled on hiring a rotating staff of three waiters and two bussers. I went to all my past colleagues, the people that I thought were dope. And I was like, hey,
1: I'm opening my own joint. You should quit that job. You should come over here. And so I hired I hired
0: straight lethal waiters. So Gabriel and his partner put a plan together, assembled a staff, and got to work. But what about actually constructing the joint? An IKEA
1: build-out. Like, I mean, we built that thing out of plywood. If you... Get like a good karate kick to the bar. It's coming down. Yeah, like it's coming down. It's yeah. shit's propped up with a few L brackets. Like it's 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 endearing.
0: But nevertheless, Gabriel's first restaurant, The Little Owl, was born. People flocked
1: to it. It was the anti-restaurant of the moment. We cooked with heart and soul, and high fived everybody that walked through the door. And everybody was just like the energy here is. Awesome. This, that, the, the goal was at all costs make people smile,
0: and it worked. And the pro forma were the projections right? Gabe had claimed they could pay the investors back within five years. As it turned out,
1: we paid them back in two years, and that parlayed itself into a second restaurant with the same partner. It was late 2007, early maybe 2008. I'm working all the time got no days off everybody knows my name i was in new york times food and wine gq esquire like me not just the restaurant like i was like wow I'm, i'm known in this industry in this city and i'm 27 so i'm popular i'm making money and i'm living large and every day i'm miserable
0: Miserable because Gabe and his partner, the chef, stopped seeing eye to eye. With equal ownership of the restaurants and no provisions for conflict resolution, they were at a stalemate. To get out, Gabe sold his half of Little Owl. Gabe's next step? opened up a new restaurant. And this time, he wanted it to be an accessible neighborhood restaurant, something you could pop into without a reservation. But now, he has to raise the money all over again the
1: worst time possible. Like literally Bear Stearns is falling apart while I'm approaching investors.
0: And and so how do you find these investors?
1: As unfortunate as life is, the more money you make, the easier it is for you to get money. This was now my third time. I was able to sit there and say, here's a track record. That's my tax return. That's what I do. Here's what I think I
0: can do over here. It's just way more powerful. Gabriel has much more access to people this time around. As a bartender, no one knew him. But having owned two restaurants, having been in publications like Bon Appetit and the New York Times, shows like Martha Stewart, Gabriel now has some cachet.
1: I had a list of people who had said to me, let me know next time you're doing one. Whenever you're doing one again, I'm like, let me know. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. I keep a running list.
0: And Gabe went about raising $300,000 at the same projected IRR as the first restaurant, 20% but this time around he has an established reputation. As opposed to finding 10 small donors, Gabriel could reasonably find one big donor. I don't like to take a lot of money from one person. It's a very
1: strong position I've taken to date. I've had people offer me half a million dollars and my answer is no. Instead of giving me half a million dollars, give me 50,000. My reasons are, if you give me a half a million, you're going to care about how your money's doing. You are going to be asking me more questions. You're going to want more reports. If it doesn't perform well, you might have stress levels associated with that. If you lose your money, might that have a meaningful impact on your life? If you give me 50000 can that be a much more casual investment for you? Can you enjoy it more? Can you just come and hang out? I, I would rather this be fun for you. Because the truth of the matter is, this is a high-risk investment. The chances of failure for my industry is 9 out of 10.
0: And so Gabe sold 10 shares to raise money for his new restaurant, Joseph Leonard. By the so
1: time I opened the restaurant, there was none left. The 300 was gone.
0: 300 is gone. I,
1: I, I miscalculated. I went over budget by 30 grand.
0: Pretty so, close, though.
1: Yeah, I'm pr- pretty close. 10% off. Yeah. Right? Um, I prefer to be under budget is is my target. If I say three hundred, I want it to be done for two seventy. Has that been the case going forward? with I've Never right? achieved that yet. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> Still, even though he went over budget, Gabe didn't manage to open up his restaurant, Joseph Leonard. It even just celebrated its ten year anniversary as a jewel in the crown of his empire, the Happy Cooking Hospitality
2: Group. But in general, the the more you spend to build it, the the longer it takes to make the money back. And now we move to the other side of the table. That
0: again is Eli Chait. Now that we've seen what investing in a restaurant looks like from an operator's side, we can look at it from the investor's perspective.
2: There's a lot of variables. There's no right amount of money to build a restaurant. It really depends on the concept and and what the expected check average is. There's also a lot of very successful restaurants that you would think are hugely profitable that haven't paid a dime back to investors.
0: Is there an expected return um, that you as an investor wants. Um, obviously, something like a restaurant is pretty high risk. You have an expertise in it, but clearly the opportunity cost of you putting your money into this restaurant over another one, um, there's probably a minimum amount that
2: you're expecting to get paid back, right? If you're looking at a restaurant and the proposed IRR is 10%, you know, you're probably better off investing in something that's less risky and where your money's not going to be locked up for, you know, forever. I mean, restaurants are illiquid there's no restaurants don't really get sold in the way that other businesses get sold so they're cash flow businesses so it's always a question of are you going to make your money back with cash flow and if you are how quickly and how does it compare to other investments and so you know i think typically most decks you're looking at for a restaurant will will say they're going to have at least a 15 20 25% irr um if it's below that, it's sort of like, what's the point? This math doesn't make sense. Obviously, anybody could write anything in a, in a deck. So, you know, you've got to look at the plan and believe they're actually going to be able to do it. And again, you got to look at the time. Like if, it, if you think you're going to be, open, be able to open a restaurant in 12 months and it takes you three years, which, by the way, is not uncommon, you know, that makes the IRR really bad. So um, how quickly you could build a restaurant has a huge impact on your on the rate of your return. If you invest in a restaurant, your investment starts on
0: day one, the day they take the money. But if it takes three years to open, that's three years of making zero return. That's not a good thing. It lowers the actual IRR from what was estimated. And that's three years of lost opportunity. You could have been making a return elsewhere, like the stock market. But even if you miraculously open your restaurant under budget and within a reasonable time frame, there's another way that miscalculations can rear their head. The menu, there's a part of it that's
1: subjective and then there's a part of it that's more basic econ. So we write the menu that speaks to whatever that concept is. You try to stay true to the concept. What, what did we wanna be here? And then what are dishes that excite us about that type of menu? So let's just use simple math. Let's say a target food cost is 30%, okay? Uh, if I buy something for $10, I should sell it for probably 33 Now, you could just price everything that way. There are other thoughts, which is price some things that are lower and some things higher. And you make those decisions based upon the more expensive the cost is to you, right? So maybe my lobster, I'm selling at a 50% cost. Because maybe the lobster costs me $20, and I'm going to sell it for 40 But maybe my chicken, I'm making at more like a 20% cost. And I'm making a greater margin. And so you want your total cost to land at 30% or better. And the ways you achieve that is then once you start operating, then you have to look at your item sales trends. If my most popular dish is the dish with the highest cost, then I'm going to have a high cost. That might be okay, though, if it's dropping the most dollars, right? You know, if the most popular dish is the lobster, great. You know, like, fuck the cost. It works. Generally, that's not the case. Generally, the most expensive item on your menu is not the biggest seller. It's uncommon. It's never been the case in any of my restaurants that the most expensive thing is the number one seller. It never is the case. Hey, you know what? I'll take a little bit of a higher cost on the Dover sole. Let's sell it for less than the short rib. You know, because I don't want to have a $60 fish on my menu. So there's those things. There's also just like market analysis, which is something that I'm constantly doing. But at a certain point, you look at a menu and you're going to feel it's expensive. And at a certain point, I'm going to look at a menu and I'm going to feel it's expensive. And I try my best to stay in tune with what I think the
0: general populace would think. Even if your menu is fine and well-balanced, there are plenty of other issues that might sink a restaurant. The very reason you love one restaurant, a romantic setting, might pose a huge challenge.
1: Perla on Mineta Lane. I thought we had an awesome restaurant. I thought the location was a problem. It's a super tiny, quiet street. You know, one street lamp. All these things that make it amazing and romantic, they also mean that it has no foot traffic.
0: Then, of course, a restaurant might seem too special, too stellar for frequent visits.
1: The reputation of Perla was sterling, but I think people began to think of Perla as a special occasion restaurant. Perla's where you go when you've got a birthday. Perla's where you go when you've got an anniversary. Perla's where you go when you want to ball out. It was our most expensive restaurant. They felt like it was delicious, but like, when do you go back?
0: Gabe ended up finding a new location for Perla, kept the same team, and rebranded it as Perla Cafe, a more casual Italian restaurant. It worked for a little while, The business started falling off again.
1: And I became convinced that the problem with Perla Cafe was simply that it was an Italian restaurant in a neighborhood full of Italian restaurants. And I thought, you know, find a landscape that's not saturated or find another concept. Do I want to lose this whole team and this lease? Like, I'm plugging holes of losses out of my personal bank account. I can do that for a few months. I can't do that for
0: perpetuity. Game ended up shutting down Perla Cafe and pivoting the space to an entirely new concept called Fairfax in 2017. And I'm super grateful.
1: Every now and then, when you throw a Hail Mary, it gets caught. Most of the time, they
0: don't. Could someone of less means and reputation make the same moves as opposed to just shuddering? It's hard to say. And sometimes it just doesn't make sense to keep going at it at all. Take Mamar, which Gabe shuttered in 2016. A bad location was part of the problem, but there were other issues. Layout.
1: It's the only restaurant that I've ever built where the kitchen was in the basement. It made it hell on the staff. Every time you needed to pick up a plate of food that was ready, you needed to run downstairs. Anytime you needed to clear a table, you needed to run downstairs. People were doing flights of stairs all night. And I think a lot of people's first impression of Mamar was that it was not good. We changed chefs twice there. That's Momar. I've done the postmortem on that. We failed.
0: So yeah, even successful people like Gabe Stallman get things wrong, including execution. Hell, even a megastar like Gordon Ramsay has closed down a restaurant. If you look for a commonality, though, it isn't that satisfying. Not enough demand, or your costs are just too high, and no amount of demand is going to fix it.
2: The restaurant business is incredibly complicated.
0: That again is Eli Chait our restaurant analytics expert.
2: There's all the stuff that happens in the background. The average restaurant is getting hundreds of paper invoices on a monthly basis and sending out hundreds of paper checks on a monthly basis. Just the complexity, dealing with all of the paper, dealing with all of that, it's really challenging. Restaurants could go out of business because they can't figure out how to actually pay their bills. Right. I started a company last year called Wholesale, spelled sale like a sailboat, and the problem that we're focused on is digitizing all of the paper that's involved in that payment process. This is a huge challenge. A lot of the key people in a restaurant are spending time thinking about things like, you know, we missed some invoices and we're about to get cut off from one of our most important vendors. Or they're just deciding that, you know what, I can't handle this. I'm going to completely outsource this to an accounting firm that's going to charge me $5,000 a month for basically processing paper. You know, it's just hard to keep the trains running.
0: Even staffing can be hard. Restaurants are competing for staff, and in economic boom times, it can be difficult to retain talent.
2: I think a lot of restaurants are failing or not opening because of hiring these days. They're not able to attract enough people. Um, And I've seen some restaurants that are, again, almost unlimited demand. Everybody wants to go there, but they're still open five days a week because they can't staff the restaurant up enough to open those other two days. And so you may get everything right on the demand and operations side, but if you can't build the team and you can't hire people, you know, that could be your limiter. If you can't figure out how to get people to take the Monday dinner shift that starts at 4.30 p.m., you can't open. Because this is
0: such a challenge, there are companies like InstaWork. They're trying to solve short-term hiring for servers, line cooks, and dishwashers. And of course, even beyond staffing, restaurants have to navigate a slew of regulations and permitting requirements, many of which may not be obvious at first.
2: I've seen restaurants that it took three months to get electricity turned on. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that could go wrong in the process of opening a restaurant that I think is unlike a lot of other businesses. You know, when you have a single bad experience at a restaurant as a diner, it's easy to chalk it up to, oh, this restaurant just sucks. But, you know, it could be it had an off night. Just recognizing the complexity is, is something most people would benefit from.
0: This episode just makes it all the more clear that restaurants need and deserve government assistance until they can fully reopen. I truly hope things get easier for the restaurant industry next year. Until then, let's support them by ordering takeout and gift cards, tipping well, and donating to funds like Roar New York. I wanna thank my guests Gabriel Stolman and Eli Chait. This episode was produced by Max Miller with additional editing by Valentino Rivera. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. To hear more episodes and find our newsletters and guides, visit thetalkmoney.com. And check out season three coming January 13th. Happy holidays.